Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. 2024 marks a major fighter heritage milestone, the 50th anniversary of the F-16's first flight. Heather Penny and I just got back from Edwards Air Force Base where the Air Force marked this occasion and it was incredible. We got to see a ton of Vipers, some from its earliest tales and the big wing XL variant to current operational aircraft and of course, the Thunderbirds. More importantly, we were surrounded by so many people who were key players in the jet, from the earliest days to today. And that's what really counts. The soul of any airplane is comprised of the people who designed it, produced it, fly and sustain it, plus everyone else who has a part in the enterprise. And let's be honest, as card-carrying Viper pilots, Heather and I had an amazing time connecting with a lot of old friends and making new ones, all of us connected by this amazing airplane. So, knowing this anniversary was coming up, we wanted to help tell the story of the F-16 on this podcast. And trust me, we have got an awesome conversation set up for you. We've got General Mike Lowe, an absolute legend in Air Force history. Long before he served as Vice Chief of Staff of the Service and later commanded Air Combat Command, he was a young officer just back from flying combat in Vietnam assigned to work with the father of the F-16, Colonel John Boyd, in the Fighter Requirements Directorate in the Pentagon from November 1969 to June of 1972. He circled back to the program from July 1973 to June of 1977 as the project manager for the YF-16 and F-16 at Aeronautical Systems Division. He continued to fly the F-16 throughout his career, marking the beginning of a three-generation legacy that continues today in the Air Force with nearly 9,000 F-16 hours to the Lowe family name. We also have Major General Charlie Lyon, who began his career in the F-16 in the early 80s when the jet was brand new and far more basic than anything flying today. He is a fighter weapons school graduate and a 422 test and evaluation squadron instructor pilot and later a squadron, group, and wing commander. General Lyon has flown every block and variant of the F-16 during his time in the Air Force and flew the airplane as one of the first b corpsers being trained by IPs with less than 100 hours in the jet, to becoming one of the authorities in the aircraft's capabilities and tactics developers. He would also command at the squadron, group, and wing levels, amassing 3,000 hours in the F-16. And finally, we've got Major General Larry Stuttream, who transitioned from the F-4 to the F-16 in the mid-80s, and he'll explain to us what it was like making that adjustment from the Phantom to the Viper and what things were like back in the Cold War Air Force. His ability to compare and contrast the F-16 to other fighters in the inventory is second to none. And this history really matters, and that's why we're excited to share it with you today. And let's face it, the F-16 is arguably one of the most influential fighter aircraft to take to the skies in defense of so many nations around the globe. Now, I know, it is no secret that I have an unapologetic affection for this airplane, but today's discussion is coming from the objective view. We want to discuss how the program began and initially populated Air Force ramps 
as the low cost, high production rate, day only, visual flight rules dogfighter. We also explore how it later evolved to an all weather, all mission fighter. I mean, this evolution is incredible because the flexibility of its design allowed the Air Force to grow the Viper's capability to remain relevant and lethal for five decades of service. And the story isn't finished, with jets still in production and COCOMs asking for it every day. From its inception in the basement of the Pentagon to flying in more than two dozen Air Forces around the globe, you won't want to miss this deep dive into the creation of the F-16 Fighting Falcon affectionately known as the Viper. So General Loser, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage. The last time we spoke was a few years ago during the 30th anniversary of Desert Storm, and now we are back celebrating 50 years of the F-16. So, sir, it is great to have you back on our show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Slick. Thank you for inviting me. And Major General Lyon, sir, welcome. I know you are no stranger to the Mitchell Institute, so welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast, and thanks for sharing your experiences with the F-16. Morning, Slick. It's great to join you and Stutz here again at the Mitchell Institute. And what a special treat to be a, a wingman to General Lowe as he recounts the origins of the program for us today. Well, sir, I have to tell you, I, I'm pinching myself getting to the opportunity to interview uh, General Lowe a second time. So I'm right there with you. And uh, Major General Stutz, Stutz Reem, sir, welcome back to the podcast. Always a pleasure chatting with you and getting your perspective on air and space power. We're just super excited to discuss your time. Uh, in the early days of the F-16 with our audience. Fantastic, Slick. It's great to be back. I love the work you do. And salute to my friend C. Lyon and my respects to General Lowe this morning. Amazing. Well, General Lowe, sir, we're just going to jump right into it because, you know, the Air Force is currently in the middle of a major modernization push as we work to deal with peer threats like China and Russia. But this isn't the first time we've faced these pressures. And in the latter part of the 1960s and the early 1970s, you know, that marked an era of change uh, with the Air Force birthing a clean sweep of new fighters with the F-15, F-16, and the A-10. Uh, what was the climate like back then? What drove the Air Force to pursue such a major fighter modernization push? I mean, F-4s and F-111 and A-7s weren't that old at the time. No, but two out of the three were Navy airplanes, and we vowed after Vietnam, all of us flying the F-4, C, D, and E models, we vowed at the time, let's see if we can't build a stable of Air Force-developed and Air Force-invented and Air Force-produced fighters because we're tired of flying Navy aircraft, particularly the F-4 that was not designed for the uh, kind of combat that the Air Force normally flies. The F-4 was designed as a, as a fleet air defense aircraft with the Sparrow missiles and not much maneuver. And we wanted highly maneuverability in the, in the air battle arena for our fighters and, and both guns, short-range missiles, and, and a few radar missiles. So therefore, the, the incentive to build up the Air Force was the post-Vietnam drawdown, the desire to build our own stable Air Force, develop and produce stable of fighter aircraft. And uh, because the F-4, the A-7 were both maybe developed, and the F-111 turned out not to be quite as affordable as we thought it would be and are also limited in range. So that was the impetus for the, uh, one, one of the impetuses for the start of the lightweight player program. Yeah, and sir, you know, I touched on this in the introduction, but you were there from the very start of what would later become the F-16. And you worked with Colonel John Boyd, a man whom many, including yourself, consider the father of the F-16 uh, during multiple assignments. In fact, as I understand it, 
you were with him in the late 1960s at Eglin Air Force Base, where he was diving deep into his energy management analysis. So could you explain to us why this concept was so foundational to the story? Oh, yes. I had a very close relationship with John Boyd. Our relationship started back in 1966 when I was a young captain fighter pilot flying F-4s, new F-4s in the 33rd Tech Fighter Wing at Eglin Air Force Base. Boyd had just graduated with a degree from uh, Georgia Tech in engineering, and he was at the uh, Air Force Weapons Lab at Eglin across the field and working with Tom Christie, who was, the, who was running the mathematics computer lab at the time. Boyd was just in the very infancy of his development of the theory of energy maneuverability, which if you want an equation, it was very simple. It was P sub S, which is specific excess power. The excess power that you have uh, in a fighter aircraft at any point in the envelope, it equaled the, the thrust minus drag uh, times its velocity, which specific excess power. And the, and the P sub S charge that he developed at the time for any aircraft, in this case, the F-4, showed uh, the parts of the envelope, the flight envelope, altitude versus uh, versus Mach number, where the F-4 had a lot of excess power uh, in, in its envelope. And so he came over to brief us in the 33rd wing before we went to Vietnam uh, to show where the F-4 had advantages over the MiG-21, which we were fighting with in Vietnam at the time. And so it was very helpful to, to understand where in the flight envelope we should be fighting MiGs and where we should avoid fights. But at the time, I developed a good design I joined up with him at the Pentagon. I volunteered to come back to be part of the fighter requirement shop with Boyd to help develop the new fighter, the lightweight fighter for the Air Force. And so that was the beginning of our relationship. But I worked with Boyd uh, daily for two and a half years in the Pentagon while we worked the requirements, the EM charts, developed contractor interest, and the whole uh, study for the work on the lightweight fighter actually began in 1970 when we thousand dollars out of the uh, Air Force to do a very innocuous study called the use of energy, uh, the use of energy maneuverability as a design tool for fighter aircraft. Nobody thought much about that, but we were able to generate the interest of industry and we encouraged industry to spend a lot of their own money on it. And sure enough, that came up with a lot of the paper designs for uh, the lightweight fighter at the time. Over. Well, sir, I tell you, I mean, I've read the book, and for those listening to the podcast that have not read Boyd, the fighter pilot who changed the art of warfare, it really gives some background and understanding into the time frame in which you were you were working with John Boyd. And and sir, you are now in the fighter requirement shop after getting back from Vietnam in the fall of 1969, as you mentioned. What were they up to when you arrived? I mean, you know, the F-15 program was in full swing with major support of Air Force leadership. And Boyd was working his energy maneuver effort. And, and, you know, as I understand it, he was teaming with industry players like Harry Hallecker and from General Dynamics, John Paterno from Northrop and Kelly Johnson from Lockheed Skunk Works. Yes. In fact, the F-15 had just gone on contract for full-scale development. And at the end of 69, when I arrived at the, at the Pentagon, and so it was, it was off and running and it was the fighter for the Air Force. And if anybody objected to the F-15 or tried to raise a competitor to it, they were immediately immediately shunted, slammed down, and outcast. But anyway, we pressed on with our study, and uh, you're right, we had five contractors developing designs for a lightweight fighter, using energy maneuverability as the basis for the design effort. And so we were cranking out EM plots for all the fighters against threat aircraft, and uh, Tom Christie down at Eglin was cranking them out and doing uh, very good work there. Uh, but 
we weren't getting very far other than paper studies. And of course, we were considered a threat to the S-15. Anything that came up, the lightweight fighter was was condemned by McDonald's relatives. It was actually condemned by the Air Force because they thought that all oh, these are cheap little fighters that can't do anything. So the breakthrough came when David Packard, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense at the time, serving a two-year volunteer assignment. He was the uh, uh, CEO of Hewlett-Packard, and he was serving in the Pentagon, and he was tired of looking at paper proposals for major weapon systems. And he said, I want to build some prototypes. We can pick a few programs and build some prototypes so I can actually fly before buy. That's where the expression fly before buy came about. It was under the Packard study on prototyping back in 1971. And we were influential enough with our contacts in the, in the OSD all up and down the line and some, some, some friends who chose not to come out of the closet to influence that study so that Packard picked lightweight fighter as one of his two prototyping candidates. The other was the advanced medium stole transport, which was to be a competitor with the C-130. But anyway, the lightweight fighter was the primary project and we won that one. We were delayed. That was the first major, first breakthrough in the program. We were actually going to build hardware. And I was part, John Boyd and I both were part of this initial source selection for the lightweight fighter. General Jim Stewart, the commander of ASD at the time, was the source selection authority. We went around to each of the five contractors and we were able to pick the both the, the, the two that were picked as a result of the source selection. I can get into details on that, but I won't for the sake of time. We're, were the uh, general dynamics on the Northrop Grumman, the YF-16 and the YF-17. And this was, it was important that we fly these airplanes because there were, there were several technical breakthroughs that we need, technical issues that we needed to solve that people were skeptical about. And there were some, there were some myths going around about uh, small fighter aircraft. So the prototypes, uh, we wanted to fly the prototypes because in the first place, the, the F-16 had a fully fly-by-wire flight control system without any mechanical backup. This would be the first time we ever built an airplane, a fighter, or any other airplane that had a full, fully fly-by-wire electronic flight control system with no mechanical backup. Nobody wanted to accept that. The fighter pilots in fact said, we're not going to fly an electronic airplane with lightning, et cetera. We, you know, if something happens and we're going to lose control of the airplane, we're not going to, we're not going to fly, and we're not going to believe in that. So we had to overcome that uh, technical issue, and we could do that by flying the prototype. The second, the second issue was small fighters can't go anywhere, don't have any range, we can't use them. And uh, they didn't realize that what actually created range in a fighter aircraft technically, and that is, it wasn't the amount of fuel you carried in the airplane, it was the fuel fraction, the percent of fuel, uh, the percent of the weight of the aircraft that was attributed to fuel. It was fuel, uh, initial fuel, divided by uh, the gross weight of, of the aircraft. And of course, at the time, the, F, the T-38 F-5 were flying, and the F-5 was a very short-legged fighter, and they kind of assumed that the YF-16 or the F-16 and F-17 would be similar to the F-5. It wouldn't go anywhere. It wasn't suitable for uh, missions that the Air Force had to fly. And, and as a matter of fact, on internal fuel, the fuel fraction of the F-16 is higher than the fuel fraction of the F-15. And we wanted to make sure that stood, and, and it did. And of course, even today, if you see an F-15 flying, and it has been throughout its entire life, you'll see a 600-gallon centerline fuel tank strapped to the belly because it didn't have enough internal fuel to do a reasonable, even air superiority mission. So, so we, we debunked that theory that through the prototype flying these long, longer-range missions, we, we debunked the theory that small aircraft can't go anywhere. 
And the other thing that made it attractive uh, from my standpoint, and, and because I was the one responsible for missionizing the airplane into an operational fighter for the Air Force and not just a, a prototype with no systems, was the uh, miniaturization, the revolution and the miniaturization of electronics that occurred during the 1970s, where we had smaller transducers, we had TR modules coming out to, to, to replace large apertures for radars. We had other smaller sensors. We had smaller weapons that could develop more explosive power per pound of, per pound of TNT. So the whole revolution of miniaturization made the F-16 very attractive because we could carry more sensors. The radar could be very useful even air-to-air, -air, and we could put a pretty significant payload in and still have a long range. So anyway, that's so we uh, had a source selection. We, we went and flew the prototypes, and once the prototypes started flying, everybody liked the F-16 and F-17. That, that was attractive. If you ever want to sell a program, get a flying prototype, and it'll sell itself almost. <laughs> well, sir, I have to tell you, I mean, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat here because... Having worked in the fighter requirements office, as you did, you know, we you understand the fact that the Air Force decides that they want to have a program, they set up requirements, and then people respond to that. And as I understand it, and it's crucial for our audience to understand that there was no clear requirement issued by Air Force leaders to create the F-16 program. You and your team were able to influence some other efforts to really help this pathway for prototypes designed around energy maneuverability concepts. So, sir, can you just talk to us about the fly-off? So, Northrop brings the YF-17, which would later evolve into the FA-18, and General Dynamics has the YF-16. And, I'm, you know, when I think about this, you and your team birth what would, what would be two of the most influential, impactful jet fighters in history. So, what was the evaluation program like and how did the aircraft do and just to be clear this is still a concept effort there's no guarantee the air force will buy any of these jets right yeah that's correct we were we were flying the airplanes to to generate interest and to figure out how to proceed from there and uh, and also to overturn some myths about uh, the f-16 and f-17 because the air force was as you know, dead set against it because they were buying F-15s and just getting into production on the F-15. And the F-16 and 17 lightweight fighters were, were, were condemned because they were small fighters. They can't go anywhere. So we had a myth to overcome that small fighters can't go far. And we did that by having the, by, by the prototype allowed us to, to validate the fact that it's not fuel quantity that matters in the fighter. It's fuel fraction, the amount of fuel in the airplane that is uh, devoted to fuel versus the total gross weight. And we, in fact, on internal fuel, outranged, outranged the F-15 in a combat mission. Uh, we also were required to debunk the problem that the fly-by-wire flight control had on the, F on the YF-16 because nobody, in, even in the operational Air Force, the fighter pilots didn't want to fly an all-electronic an, an all jet that had no mechanical backup. So we were the first fighter that, that was produced that had a... Uh, fully fly-by-wire flight control system with no mechanical backup. And it took the prototype flying to, 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 to have the pilot community, the fighter pilot community, accept the F-16 because we had the quadruply redundant uh, flight control system and we put the flight control computer in a, in a titanium bathtub right underneath the pilot's seat. So that it was very safe, very safe location, safe to fly. You know, electronics came about where we could put a lot per uh, more TNT per pound of 
a bomb weight, a weapons weight, and also uh, the miniaturization of electronics with the, the, the TR modules and all that for the sensors and the smaller computers and everything allowed the F-16 and F-17 to package a very heavy, very large payload uh, of electronics as well as a large weapons weapons payload. So the prototype did all of that. At the same time as they started flying, we were developing the RFP in the Pentagon, as a matter of fact, in the Pentagon for the full-scale development of the of it because we knew the program was likely to go to go further. And so that second, the second the breakthrough was how are we going to get how are we going to get the the winner of this competition into development, full-scale development and production. And we had an ally. Our ally was, was uh, the Secretary of the Air Force, Jim Schlesinger. He was an advocate of the lightweight fighters. And uh, so we were developing advocacy and as a sidelight. You know, anytime you want to sell a program, don't try to sell it on paper. Build a prototype and fly it or sail it or, 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 or do something with it. Build a demo or a prototype and you'll get a lot of supporters. So we had a lot of, once these prototypes started flying and they saw what they could do in terms of maneuverability, and range and so forth, they, we, we had a lot of advocates everywhere in the Pentagon, in industry, everywhere except within the Air Force at the time and within, and within the McDonnell Douglas, the, the contractor for the F-15. So the, 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 site, the second breakthrough, the first breakthrough was to get the lightweight fighter as a, pro, as a flying prototype. The second breakthrough was to make it a program of record. And the second breakthrough occurred in early 74. In fact, this is when the, the 50 years started in January of 1970. Four was the first flight of the, of the YF-16. At that time, at that time, we were trying to find a way to get it into development and production. We were writing the requirements, the requirements in the RFP for the for the fighter, for the, and what then became the air combat fighter from lightweight fighter. But the breakthrough was when Secretary Schlesinger, who was an advocate for the program, said, "I want to build these airplanes," and, and uh, the Air Force rejected. And so the breakthrough came when Schlesinger made an offer to the. Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General David Jones, in early 74. And he said, look, we'll make a deal with you, General Jones. I will let you buy the full complement of F-15s. In fact, at the time, the F-15 was having trouble cost-wise. It was becoming very expensive. And the Air Force was afraid they weren't going to be able to buy all of the F-15s that it wanted. So, so Schlesinger came to Jones and and said, I'll let you buy, I will let you buy, we'll put in the program, the full complement, all 750 F-15s. And the Air Force wanted 26 TAC fighter wing equivalents at the time, coming out of Vietnam, we're trying to get 26 TAC fighter wings. Well, you couldn't get those with all F-15s and F-111s or even A-10s because, because the F-15s were costing too much. So Schlesinger said, I'll make a deal. I'll give you all 750 F-15s, the full complement that you want if you'll then fill out the rest of the 26 TAC fighter wings with the winner of the YF-16, YF-17 competition. And they shook hands and, and Dick General Jones agreed. And it was a win-win situation for both of them. It was win-win because the Air, the Air Force got all the F-15s it wanted and also got the uh, 26 TAC fighter wing equivalents. And the lightweight fighter advocates like myself, Boyd, we won because we were, we were able to find a way to get the F-16 into production. So that was win-win for both the Air Force, for lightweight fighter advocates, and for the Air Force that wanted 26 TAC fighter wings. That was a breakthrough, and that became the program of record when they agreed to that. And we fully funded the uh, Air Combat Fighter Program. And then we had the source selection briefing, which we ran at, at the end of the prototype program. We had a full source selection competition, and I was part of that source. So in fact, I, I gave the briefing. I gave the source selection briefing for the F-16 versus f 
17 to Secretary McLucas at the time in January 1975. And it shows the results of the prototype program and all of the other elements that go into a source selection, including the cost and the risk and, and so forth. And our, we, we favored, we, suppose the, the fighter underground favored the F-16. It was more agile, more maneuverable. The F-17 was a great airplane. Of course, it became the F-18. It's become a, a great airplane, but it didn't have quite the agility of the F-16 because the F-16 had the fly-by-wire system, which allowed you to put the uh, center of gra gravity behind the center of pressure and took a lot of weight out of, out of what would otherwise be required for static stability. And it also it also was very highly maneuverable, much more maneuverable than, than the F-17. So uh, McLucas, Secretary McLucas picked the F-16 and, and full-scale development then was underway. And we were we were ahead of the game at that time. We were not ahead of the game. We were we had been successful in making the F-16 a program of record and underway as a as a fully fledged Air Force fighter. Well, sir, I would say I would say you were creating the game with what you all were doing, which is absolutely incredible. And and your the milestones that you all created is just mind blowing. And I also think, and I say this kind of joking, but of course, our F-15 buddies now owe us all a beer instead of making fun of us that we saved their their bacon by making sure that they got the full compliments of the F-15, which is something you know that I did not know. What, one question I want to ask you is just such a how question. How did you set the F-16's initial requirements when it was clear that the Air Force leadership wanted it as a program? What were the influencing factors in your big picture objectives? Okay, well, we wanted, uh, one, we and I particularly wanted the F-16 to be a multi-role fighter. We, we didn't want it to compete directly with the F-15. In fact, one of the rules when we were developing the, the requirement and the request for proposal was do not put a radar missile on the F-16 because that is the purview of the, of the air superiority fighter F-15 carrying Sparrow missiles. So we separated ourselves from the F-15 in terms of direct competition by preventing the F-16 from having a radar missile, although we had sidewinders, we had a gun. And, and then the other, the other thing that separated us was I made sure that we put that the F-16 was gonna be a multi-role fighter it was going to have as much, if not more, air-to-ground capability in it as air-to-air -air capability. And that was a big breakthrough at the time. Because we didn't have a good, we had the F-111 as an air-to-ground fighter and whatever remnants of the F-4E, F-4D and E we had, but we didn't have a really good fighter air-to-ground capability. So I was making darn sure that we had a full set of sensors, air-to-ground sensors, air-to-ground weapons, and electronic warfare to, to take on the uh, threats, the electronic threats that we would encounter air, both air to air and air to ground. So, so that whole comp, full complement of, of capabilities that we put in the F-16 was designed to make it a multi-role fighter. And that, that was a, that, 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 and therefore it did not compete with the F-15 directly. It became, we, we had the high-low mix, the high was the high, the high altitude, high capability F-15 for air to air. And the low was the F-16 that had a substantial air-to-air -air capability, but also an ample air-to-ground capability. So the high-low mix became the justification the Air Force had for developing both the F-15 and the F-16. The F-15 high, the F-16 low. Over. Hey, General Lowe, this is Stutz. I'm curious, after you, know, you retired in the early 90s, did you have a sense back then that technological development 
would result in the incredible advances in capability in the F-16 up through you know today's Block 70s. It's just a fantastic maturing of that airframe. Did you have a sense that would happen? A sense of what, Stas? That it would so develop in with with respect to systems, weapons, yeah, yeah. capabilities. Yes, yeah, I did. And that's why that's why we were able to configure the aircraft. That was my goal in the lightweight fighter or the air combat fighter program office after we selected the F-16. My goal was to operationalize it out, to missionize it. So I I had to fully the prototypes had no systems in it. We wanted a full up round of systems, both air to air and air to ground. And as I said, we, we kept the sparrow off so we could we could make a clear separation between the F-15 and the F-16 in terms of capability. But we also, but I also envisioned with the revolution in electronics happening at the time, that we could package a lot of capability within a small airframe like the F-16. And we were able to do that. So I had I had a bit of a vision that, yeah, with the with the TR modules, replacing large apertures for radars, with electronic warfare sensors coming in smaller in size because of, again, the, the miniaturization of electronics and with the, the capability of weapons where you were able to develop more TNT per pound of munition, both air to air and air to ground particularly, that we could equip this small airplane with a package that's very, very capable, you know, nearly cap- as capable as the F-111. And we even designed it with nuclear nuclear provisions on it because it became and is now today a nuclear carrier. So so yeah, I had a I had faith in the fact that technology that was happening around the technology was was going to be able to make this F-16 a very very first class world class fighter. And 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 but and the other thing I want want to make out I don't know if you were going to get into this, but I'll let you ask another question. Is that does that answer your question, Stutz? It sure does, General. The other point, which is very important today in today's Air Force and has been, we haven't done a good job at it. How do you maintain cost discipline? How do you maintain configuration discipline on a fighter aircraft? We were able to do that on the F-16 while I was in the program office because we wouldn't let anybody, we had a baseline configuration and we said, we're gonna stick with that. Well, there were so many people coming in from, from everywhere, the laboratories, industry, Tactical Air Command, everywhere they wanted their widget on the airplane. We've got to put this on the F-16 because they foresaw it as a future. And, and I said, no, we're not going to do that. So eventually, eventually, about six months after putting up with this, I went to the air staff and we, we created the F-16 Configuration Steering Group. F-16 Configuration Steering Group, chaired by two, two-star general at the time, Alice Flay, who was the Director of Operational Requirements. And the F-16 configuration steering group met oh, maybe once every four months, whenever we had enough to talk about by people that wanted to put their widget on the airplane, their system on the airplane. And, and they would all come to me, the offerers would come to me, and I would conduct a cost-benefit analysis at right field on how much it would cost and what the capability would be if we put, put another weapon on the airplane, put another sensor on the airplane, put a more advanced electronic warfare on the airplane. And then, we, and then the configuration steering group would meet and there were operators and developers and, and, and those kinds of people on this configuration steering group. And before each configuration steering group met, General Slay and I would get together on the phone and we would go over each of the studies and, and we, would, we would prejudge before the meeting whether these proposals were good or not or, or worth putting in. And then we would have the meeting and the proponent would give their briefing and everything and why they wanted it. In every case, we said no. 
just saying that we said, no, no, we've got a baseline F-16. We want to keep the cost down. We want to keep the cost down. If you want, if you want the original airplane, you develop it on the side. And when it's ready for production, we'll consider putting it in the airplane. But we're not going to tie any develop, other development program for subsystems to put on the F-16. We're going to go with a baseline. That became the beginning of the multi-stage improvement program, MSIP, where we went from Block 5, Block 10, Block 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, we're up to Block 70 now. And we started with that configuration steering group because everybody, because we knew we had to maintain cost discipline. We've lost that cost discipline. We lost it in the F-35 program. We've lost it in other, other programs, as you know, even the T-7 program. We've lost it. Now we're, we're, we're probably going to lose it in the, in the B-21 if we don't do a similar, have a similar uh, ironclad cost discipline on the, uh, on the airplane. And NGAD, you know, paper airplane NGAD is already blowing up in terms of what its potential cost might be because there's no discipline and no input from the operators to say, hey, we can, we can solve whatever problem you're trying to solve with numbers. And that was the advantage of the F-16. We can say, hey, you know, we don't, we don't have to have one F-16 beat the entire Russian Air Force or even their best fighter on, on a given day, on a good day. We can, we can send numbers instead of sending two F-16s or, F or F-16s to take on somebody that all the models show that we'd lose if we didn't get out of harm's way. You know, we, we had standoff. <laughs> we said, no, we'll send, we'll send 10, we'll send 20, we'll send 30 F-16s. And so we use, we use numbers to compensate. And, and here, but what has been lost today in the operational world is this notion about contested airspace. We're afraid to fly into contested airspace. And I said, well, no, we got to fly into contested We can win in contested airspace. You don't have to do, you can't fight a war with standoff only. And every airplane, every airplane doesn't have to be stealthy. We've got a good stable of stealthy aircraft. We ought to, you know, we need to complement that with a whole package of F-16s still today. And that was our, that was our, that was, that was how we sold the F-16 back in those days that we could, we could use the numbers and operational fighter pilot tactics to compensate for the fact that we uh, were going up against an adversary that could out, out, maybe outrange us in terms of, in terms of their radar capability. They could see us first, maybe, but we could still beat them in it. And so, you know, this whole notion of, of, of maintaining cost and, and configuration discipline and depending on numbers and, the, and, the, and fighter pilot ingenuity tactics and tactics to compensate for, 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 for ha having a, a shortfall in some other, some other capability should be reinstated today because this notion that we have to, we're so afraid of China that we're gonna have to stand off outside of harm, outside of the contested airspace is nonsense, over. So now the F-16 is born and the Air Force is off to the races and standing up training and operational bases. And General Lyon, you were there as a brand new second lieutenant, fresh out of flight school with a new set of wings on your chest. What was it like to get an F-16 assignment at assignment night and show up to McDill for the B course? Well, assignment night, it was 1981 for me. The F-16 was the newest aircraft in the inventory. Seeing a picture of the F-16 flash on the video screen when my name was called, it was pure exhilaration. To get a fighter aircraft straight out of UPT, much less a brand new fighter aircraft, the only assurance you had was this, if you graduated in the top 10% of the class and you had no idea going into assignment night where you ranked in the class. You generally had an idea if you were in the top half. So this whole thing was a crapshoot getting an F-16. 
for my class, we knew that there was going to be a couple F-16s, maybe a couple F-15s and an A-10. But there's a lot of anticipation. I filled out my dream sheet. I ranked F-16 at the top. I was just doing backflips when, when I was announced to getting an F-16. McDill was the second training wing that was established to have F-16 training. And I was in the 63rd Tactical Fighter Training Squadron. We were in the first B course for this, this squadron. And most of our instructor pilots had very little experience in the aircraft. In fact, most of them had just themselves completed the transition course and the instructor course. So they had somewhere between 50 and 100 hours in the aircraft. The tech orders were new. They had a lot of pen and ink changes. The academics were struggling to keep up with the changes in the aircraft and the systems that we had. And the only simulator we had was located out at Williams Air Force Base in Arizona. So we traveled out there to get a couple simulator hops prior to our first flight in the aircraft, which was a 2CB model. And uh, we had an instructor in the backseat. Then we progressed to flying solo in the A model for each phase of instruction. It was very, very volatile. It was it just, just a sense of energy, of newness and change and things that were going on. It was just an incredible time. And, you know, we thought about this because right next to us was an F-4 training squadron. And just the contrast of the F-16 to the F-4. And I had this feeling that we're just going to, we're becoming part of the future is where the Air Force was going. That was what was great about being at the F-16 at the time. But at the same time, we're having this ability to carry on the legacy of the F-4, the jack of all trades, master of none. It just, it was an incredible feeling. And let's not forget, this was the era of heaters and guns. Radar missiles were still largely ineffective. So getting to emerge unseen or flying low and avoiding detection by other aircraft was every fighter pilot's goal. The F-16 provided that advantage, this small, maneuverable, precise navigation, accurate weapons delivery system aircraft, an incredible time in an incredible airplane. Well, sir, you just said something that, I, you know, I want to pull on this thread a little bit. You mentioned the energy that was going on there. I mean, at that time frame, it had to be absolutely unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's the F-16 in the 80s. You're getting new jets every year. You, you mentioned you're kind of replacing the F-4. I mean, give us a sense of what that was like. Well, it all started at 3D Tactical Fighter Wing at Hill Air Force Base. The first operational unit and first flight happened in the same month, January 1979. And by early 1980, second lieutenants were already flying the aircraft, not just the old heads. The Air Force declared F-16 IOC in October 1980, less than two years after the first flight, operational flight. So one thing we embraced in the F-16 community from the outset, the spirit of attack, that was our mantra. And I credit the early tacticians such as Joe Bob Phillips, Norton Nelson, and Wayne Edwards for creating this culture. The spirit of attack is often coined as an innate aggressive desire to seek out and destroy the enemy. And that was how we approached our training missions. We weren't merely planning to go to the assigned target and drop bombs. We would seek out any enemy in the air that chose to put himself between us and the target and kill him. Now, that was a really odd mindset for air-to-ground guys to have. There was a coming-out party for the F-16 to demonstrate this. It was the Lossy Mouth Royal Air Force Bomb Competition in 1981, less than a year after IOC. This was composed of U.S. Air Force and Royal Air Force air-to-ground fighters. They were assigned surface targets to go destroy with precise time over target and air-to-air -air aggressors coming to harass them en route to the targets. Well, the F-16s blew away the competition. They had 88 air-to-air -air kills, 
They destroyed all assigned surface targets. They had a near-perfect navigation timing score, and no other team came close. This was the first highly visible application of the spirit of attack, and it was on the world stage in 1981. Two years later, the coming out party for Gunsmoke, 1983, F-16's premier event. The teams that went there took number one, number two, and number four place in the overall competition. This is what's going on in the F-16 in the early years. We're going through a lot of transitions of wings, a lot of new people coming in. This is how good the aircraft was, though. This is how revolutionary it was at the time. It was blowing away the competition as we got these new, these new blocks of aircraft, new capabilities. We are flying line jocks 200 to 275 hours a year. We are exercising monthly in both PACAF, USAFE, and ACC. It was just an incredible time with a lot of focus on readiness and preparedness in a brand new aircraft. Sir, it's absolutely incredible. And I, I have to say, as you, you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, arguably one of the most successful aviation movies and in, in, in anticipated aviation movies with Top Gun Maverick, you know, they decided that they were going to go low and fast, <laughs> do a low level to a pop attack. I mean, if that's not uh, flying an attack airplane, as you mentioned, I don't know what is. But yeah, as easy it is, as it is for us to get super excited, you know, of course, the jet did have some growing pains and, and lessons learned, as we say, written in blood. So can you walk us through some of those challenges and, and, and how it was for the Air Force team, you know, plus the in industry partners to come together to solve those? Well, it's true. In Tactical Air Command, we had 24 Class A safety mishaps across three wings in my first three years flying the F-16. That's equivalent of one squadron's complement of aircraft. Flight control system batteries, electrical failures, engine anomalies, pretty significant for a single-engine aircraft. G-induced loss of consciousness. These all resulted in the term lawn dart, a term by given by those who didn't fly the aircraft, something that wasn't uh, endeared by us because of the friends that we had lost in fatal collisions with the ground. Yeah, we had fatalities. We had fleet stand downs. But we observed changes being made rapidly by General Dynamics, our prime contractor at the time, and Systems Command to fix these deficiencies. They were incorporated in the block upgrades and in the case of G loss of consciousness by training and educating our pilot community on how to master the art of sustained high G environment something the pilots hadn't encountered in the third-generation fighters that preceded the F-16. We saw a very agile, iterative approach at this time. I mean, little did I know as a line jock, as a result of what was going on, that these block upgrades were all part of the strategy that General Lowe and others had put in place to rapidly field this low-cost fighter. They, they knew that things would have to be fixed along the way. I observed that taking place, as did my, my fellow fighter pilots. The electrical systems and flight control battery systems logics were fixed as a result of Class A mishaps. So what was the sequence? There'd be a mishap, a stand down. They'd analyze the problem, develop the solution, insert a time-critical TCTO, return flight. The Pratt & Whitney F-100 engine came up with the digital EEC. Then they came up with the Dash 220 engine, which eventually, by the time we got to the Block 15, we had better reliability across all, all re regions of flight. Again, very important in a single-engine aircraft that you can slap that throttle anywhere you want and have a, a, a good confidence that it's going to give you what you need. 
we had a larger horizontal stabilizer laser in, included in the Block 15 aircraft, which eliminated the deep stalls and out of control situations. And then on the pilot and the human factor side, by 1984, we, we learned about the G induced loss of consciousness. Centrifuge training, diet, nutrition, and exercise regimen were prescribed for the fighter pilots so that they were better conditioned and better prepared to be able to handle a high G environment. Yeah, you, you really got to see this thing do this massive evolution. And, you know, of course, the tenacity of, of you all to endure what was going on at the time is absolutely incredible. And as you mentioned, you know, you're flying the jet and, and there was a plan to upgrade and, and, and expand the envelope, if you will, of what the jet was capable of doing. So when did you actually see, you know, that the jet was expanding outside its initial parameters, you know, as the day VFR high-low mixed role? And what really drove this? Well, I guess it became evident to me when I joined the 422nd Test and Evaluation Squadron at Nellis in 1987. General Lowe has already described for us the staff's plan to upgrade the F-16 along the way, but as a line jock, until I got the 422, I was unaware of that plan. I was just out flying airplanes and seeing that, hey, this is great. We're getting new aircraft almost every year. But I, I observed the plan coming together as we moved from the A model to the C model in 1985. While I was in the 422, we flew the A's and C's at the same time. And you could just tell by this point that the A model was mature, yet it was maxed out. And it really didn't have any more room for growth. The C model initially had some bugs and some performance limitations, but particularly in the radar, you could just see the growth and the growth potential. This was really important as the threat was evolving. You needed to be able to see things earlier, make quicker decisions and react. And the APG-68 gave us the detection range, the radar modes, and eventually the AIM-120 pairing to help counter the threat effectively when we needed it. The aircraft was getting heavier, this was all paving the way for the eventual late 80s edition of the navigation pod and what became the eventual Block 40 or CG configuration, which turned us into the complete opposite mission of what the day lightweight VFR fighter had been into being a nighttime fighter with the CG configuration. All right, gentlemen, this one is for all of you. What was it like flying the Viper in the 1980s during the height of the Cold War? I mean, there had to be a tremendous focus on combat readiness, and you had tons of flying hours, especially versus the folks, you know, that what they're getting today. So you also had a very defined threat. So can you walk us through that era and lessons uh, we should think about applying today? Okay, so, uh, yeah, I did not fly the FCC in operational. Yeah, I've flown it many times, but never as a combat-ready uh, operational pilot, so I don't have any direct input to your question about flying it in the 80s during the Cold War and leading up to other exigencies, but but during that time, I was in fact I was attached headquarters from 1981 to, to 85 as the director of operational requirements, and I just watched the F-16 grow in maturity and grow through the MSIP program. One thing I'm surprised that neither Stutz nor nor Sea Lion brought up was the engine. Uh, we, had, we had a problem with the engine early on. The engines, the, the, F, the Pratt & Whitney F-100 engine on the F-16 was the same engine that powered the F-15. Big difference is the F-15 had two of them, and the F-16 only had one. Yeah. And when we, when we tried to, when, when I went up to the F-15 program and we're de developing the F YF-16, trying to get information about problems they had with the F-100 engine, 
was impossible to get out of the F-15 SPO. Their SPO director was General Ben Vellis. He was ironclad. He had his own direct line to the Secretary of the Air Force and Secretary of Defense. And he and they had huge problems with the F-100 engine early on out of Edwards. In fact, they had 20 full-scale development aircraft, I mean, 10 full-scale development aircraft and 40 engines. They had four engines for each airplane because they were constantly swapping out F-100s and they had huge stall stagnation problems in the F-100. So, so we, had a, we had a big problem making the F-100 engine safe in a single engine fighter. That was a big safety issue up front. We didn't have a backup control. We had a, we had a Rube Goldberg manual backup control back in the early days of the F-16. It didn't work very well. You had to rub your belly, pat your head in order to make it work even. And most pilots got it wrong anyway. So we, we, and I tried to put a full authority electronic control in the airplane early and I got thrown out of TAC headquarters by General Dixon when I tried to propose it because it was right in the middle of the stall stagnation period. So my only point is I was happy to see in the 80s that those problems had largely been solved with regard to the engine and the pilots had confidence in the F-100 engine in a single engine fighter that we had, we had a hard time getting to back in the early days because nobody thought about Nobody thought, how, how do we use this engine in a single engine fighter? Because it grew up, the F-100 engine grew up in a twin engine fighter, the F-15, where single engine, where problems with the engine were discarded because you always had two of them and the, the backup engine was the second engine. So anyway, I'm, I'm happy to hear that neither neither Charlie or Stutz brought up any significant engine problems during, during the early growth years of the F-16. Oh, Hey, General Lowe, I got to say that I was a board president out at Luke on a uh, F-16 that was lost for a failed engine. You know, we did our 30-day thing, and I'm leaving the base after we finished up, and as I'm driving off the base, a second F-16 crashes for the, for the same time. <laughs> yeah. There were some growing pains with the, with the engine. Yep. Well, yes, I talked a little bit about the hours we got and some of the exercises we did, but I have to remember in the early 90s, this is the rise of surface-to-air missile capabilities, SA-6s, SA-8s, et cetera, and, and huge capacity. This drove us all into the low-altitude arena. Low-altitude pop-up attacks with the constantly computing IP that we had, CCIP for general purpose bombs, using the INS for accurate navigation. This is an incredible ability for us to fly low, arrival in time with minimum exposure to threats. So we're being exposed less than five seconds. And the F-16 just gave us the ability to do that. So we're flying around as low as you could, pop up, look around, there's the target. Oh, great, great weapon system solution. Boom, bombs on target, off, going, get, get home. But now try doing that with an AGM-65 in the same environment, a single seat aircraft. Ooh, that was really tough. But we did that stuff too. Let me tell you some of the real fun stuff we did at the same time. As a second lieutenant, we're going to Nellis. Can't tell you what we're going to do, but it's going to be a great TDY, guys. Okay, we get out there. We sign some paper. We're in this old World War II building. We go in these guys. They have this little red eagle patch on. We sign the paperwork. This has now been declassified. We had to fly BFN against MiG-21s. How great was that? The 4477th attack training uh, test evaluation squadron. Such a confidence builder because that was the little airplane that was the you know, the nemesis of the F-4 in Vietnam, we took our F-16 out against them and saw that we could match them on any day. 
And my good friend Hawk Carlisle and I got to fly against each other many times. These were some incredible things that we got to do in, in just an incredible time. And the lesson for today, make sure that we our training scenarios continue to adapt to the threat environment because we went from that environment I described by the late 1980s where we had all aspect adversaries with true look down, shoot down capability. Think about the introduction of the MiG-29 and the Su-27. This drove our tactics and our needed capabilities into ever-increasing reliance on ECM and AM-120 for self-defense and offensive capabilities rapidly. Quick changing ball game, and I think our F-35s for today are in the same environment. Absolutely amazing. And gentlemen, I'd quickly like to hear from you on this one too, because you, you all lived through one of the most successful modernization stories in Air Force history. And given where the Air Force is now trying to birth so many new programs, what lessons do you have for today's airmen and what does it take to get it right? And you know, what should be emulated? Are there areas where folks could learn from your mistakes as well? And, and the development of operational requirements for new aircraft like NGAD, like CCA, uh, even like B-21 and beyond, there's not enough operator input. It all comes, most, we, we, back in back in these days when we were developing F-15, F-16, F-22, we had close interaction between the operators of the operational command, air combat command, and the developers at Air Force Material Command at Wright Field, very close cooperation. So we had operator inputs in writing the requirement, and the requirement became the document of record for, for the aircraft. Today, I don't see as much connection between the developer and the operator as we did then. It is 90% developer, 10% operator, not the operator's fault. It's the way the system is working right now that we do not have a strong enough requirements input from the operational command. Over. Yeah, I'll jump in on that one. And General Lowe and I have talked about this before. And what we're, we do at Mitchell Institute is try to bring together the technologists and the warfighter that structure that existed back then was both organizational, but there were other things that have changed that have not allowed General Lowe, generals like you to be able to get outside their comfort level, you know, dip into program management, get into technology, and they may not be as well-versed in uh, development and in technology. And that's something that was powerful back in that era that the Air Force needs to reclaim. I'm, I'm totally with you on that. As I think about this and I think about uh, where the Air Force is today, the two things that are really stand out to me, building experience within these new weapon systems. Thinking about today's F-35s. In the F-16, we kept the pilots in the cockpits to build overall weapons system level experience. It was so important. We had an existential threat to our nation, the Soviet Union. We expanded the number of wings. We had to keep the pilots there. That helped ensure that we had safe, relevant flight training as we built up the entire pool of F-16 pilots. And this was documented to ensure that our pilots weren't penalized for promotion opportunities because they were doing what the Air Force needed them to most, be mission-ready to protect the nation. Number two, incremental upgrades block deliveries. It delivered combat capability quickly and at the lowest possible price point, and then it inserted technology. When able, they went back and retrofit, but not everything was retrofitable. That didn't mean that we wouldn't go to war with the previous blocks. We would, and we're prepared to go to war with those previous blocks. 
they were still better than the previous generation. That's a lesson to never forget. Let's not forget that even the initial A models or initial blocks of any new aircraft are as capable as those that they've replaced. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And, you know, I, I do want to ask on the last question here, you know, what does that mean for the three of you at an individual level to have been part of the Viper story? I mean, General Lowe, your role is second to none. You created the jet that you, your son, and now your grandson has flown and taken a war. And it's literally shaped air power history. And General Lyon and Stutz, you both helped write the operational chapters. So if you want to sign off and give us uh, your feelings on your time in the Viper, that would be be great. Well, for my part, it was just gratifying to see. Uh, I did not fly the F-16 operationally, but my son flew it. He was like Charlie Lyon. He came right out of pilot training and went to McDill and then went to Han and then to Luke and then got in the Guard. And he's, he's still, he's he's the director of the Air National Guard right now, but he has, uh, what, 3,500 hours in the F-16 in the Colorado Air National Guard. So it's gratifying to see him. And then, of course, his son, Michael John Lowe is now flying you know, F-16s at Spang Dallum. He was at Kunsan. He was at Aviano, went to Kunsan. Now he's at Spang. He's already had three assignments now in F-16s. And in fact, he just made flight commander two weeks ago. He calls, hey, I'm now, now a flight commander. What do I do, coach? <laughs> yeah, kind of. So anyway, it's, it's gratifying to see son and now grandson as a leader in the F-16 program. And my only, my only thought is, uh, I, I hear rumors that my son talks about, well, the Everybody wants to get rid of the F-16 now. We're going all F-35 and all. Don't give up on the F-16 yet. It's still a fantastic fighter. It has every capability anybody would want right now, except stealth. And it can compensate for lack of stealth for, with a number of reasons. So if you want numbers in your Air Force, and I think we, we've lost track of that now with F-35 costing as much as it does, and F-22s at the, we're not getting enough, we again have a fighter shortfall. And, you know, fill up that fighter shortfall like we did back in the, in the, in the late 70s with F-16s. You got some very capable F-16s. So don't, my message is, don't give up on the F-16 yet. And from my own standpoint, it's, it's very gratifying to see the F-16 endure for so long. Over. For me, I had the chance to fly the F-16 over, off and on over a period of 20 plus years. And what was most gratifying was to watch that this multi-role aircraft was able to continue to adapt to a changing environment. In the beginning, uh, planning to go against the Soviet Union, flying low altitude pop-up attacks, getting into night precision guided munitions, employment, medium altitude, flying, employing AGM-88s, arm targeting system against surface-to-air missiles, to contributing to the war on terror, and employing precision-guided munitions against terrorists and, and the Taliban as well. It's just very gratifying to see the continuing adaptability of the aircraft, its flexibility, and the flexibility of the pilots who flew it to be able to adapt to the environment and keep, and keep this relevant. I, I think the F-16 has got to be perhaps the best investment taxpayers have ever made in an aircraft in the Air Force inventory. When you look at how long it has flown, the price point it came in and the contribution it's made to our defense. Yeah, I'll just say, I didn't write any chapters, actually. I dog-eared a lot of the pages of great airmen like you know General Mike Lowe with us and memorized what they did and how they did things and really shaped my career around that. I will say that 
we need to understand that this era of the F-16, you know, how it was so vigorous, it was so kinetic. We're now, you know, the Air Force is the oldest and the smallest that it's been in its history. The threat is surging. Capacity matters. And we can't stay in developmental programs forever. We have to procure stuff and, and, and get that technology back on the ramp. So I appreciate, you know, the, the story of the F-16 for what it informs in terms of getting out of the bathtub the Air Force is in uh, today. But I will say that airplane stands as one of the most amazing innovations in uh, the combat aviation and will remain that way for, for decades and decades to come. Well, gentlemen, I have to tell you, it has truly been an honor to hear your perspectives on the origin of the F-16 and your personal experiences with the jet. And thank you all for your hard work and dedication to the United States Air Force and the F-16. You've certainly ensured that the Viper is the jack of all trades, but master of none. But that's certainly better than being the master of one. It's been a pleasure, Slick, for to participate in this. And uh, thank you for the invitation to participate. Slick, it's been a real pleasure to be part of the F-16 podcast this morning. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks as always, Slick. It was great. See you soon. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.